unbearable suspense that keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Among the annals of the abnormal, there is no more erotic a nightmare than the strange story of Blizzard in a Woman's Skin. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area and virtually. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Patreon. By joining our Patreon, you help make this podcast possible, as well as Cinematic Void Up All Night and the Cinematic Movie, which is our monthly screening series. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me through the power of the internet is... Hey, what's up? It's Nick Vance. You can find me at Paranoid Futures on all the social media stuff. What are we getting into today? Well, we're getting into Lucio Fulci. In fact, we're going to be talking a lot of Fulci on the next several episodes of the Cinematic Void podcast. Joining us today on the Cinematic Void podcast as we talk about Lucio Fulci and his giallos, a friend of the void. He's been a guest before. Please welcome Scott Carlson of Repulsion, Cathedral, Death Breath. You name it. This man's been in an awesome band. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. Thank you. So when I was breaking down the Fulci stuff, I was like, got to do a Giallo episode. Who am I to talk to? And you were pretty much the first person I thought about since I think we've right. talked about these movies outside of the Martino Giallos. I think we've talked more about the Fulci Giallos than anything else. Yeah, probably. They're good. And what I like about at least the 70s four and then like the two slasher giallos from the 80s is that they're all unique they're all he didn't basically actually Fulci's giallos are really different from all the other giallos from that period because they're very more attuned to erotic thriller which obviously there's eroticism in giallos throughout but like there's very like weird sexual stuff going on in all these there's really no black glove killers and there's a lot of anti-religion occultism and supernatural elements that kind of float through them yeah, they don't have like um, body counts really. And the early ones, especially like uh, you know, well even yeah, the last two are more like classic Jalo. The first four are more like murder mysteries where there's like a murder in the beginning of the movie, and then the whole movie is about trying to figure out who did it. They're more like whodunits and sort of like Hitchcock or you know Agatha Christie or something rather than with all the with all the Jalo trimmings, of course. But. There's almost a different approach to like at least these first four. So we'll start with, I guess, the first one, which came out in 1969, kind of in the pocket of all those Carol Baker and Berta Lindsay ones. And this one is one on top of the other, a.k.a. perversion story. Stars Jean Sorel, who is a French actor. He was in Day of the Jackal and Belle du Jour. Marissa Mel, who's based, best known for being Danger Diabolic. And American actor John Ireland. And it was shot in San Francisco primarily. And because of that, there's definitely shades of Hitchcock's vertigo in it. I'm just going to read the plot for those of you who haven't seen it. After his sickly wife's sudden death of an asthma attack, an unscrupulous doctor discovers she has a doppelganger who is a burlesque dancer, not aware of the intricate scheme that's being weaved around him. So already it's got that weird giallo erotic thriller thing going on. I haven't watched this one in years. I know out of the four, I don't want to say it's the tamest, but... I guess in a way it's the team. It's just based on the year it came out. Uh, it definitely, you know, uh, is like the least gory and the least violent, probably. I mean, even, you know, like I was just thinking about Lizard in a Woman's Skin might be the first Fulci film with gore in it. Uh, it also uh, asks you to believe that a man can't tell if this super hot woman is his wife or not. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> once you... Well, once you get over that part of it, it's actually a really good movie. 
But um, I watched it recently with my wife, and she was just kind of like tisk tisking at the whole idea that this guy wouldn't be able to tell uh, that this that Marissa Mel was his wife. Come on, if Marissa <laughs> Mel was your wife, you'd know. There would be plenty of things that you would that would let you know that she was your wife. But no, not but she, this guy. But I do like that it's Fulci kind of dove into the whole like swinging psychedelic aspect of like the giallos more so than I think Sergio Martino was probably another one that had to lean into it. And I guess in Berto Lindsay, especially with the Carol Baker stuff, but like because it takes place in San Francisco, they even go to San Quentin. It's it's interesting. And Reno, it's, don't forget Reno. Oh, they go to Reno. <laughs> the biggest little city in the world. Oh man. Fulci know how to pick his locations. I, I'd say it's lighter than the ones we're going to get into, but I think it's like for a late 60s erotic giallo, it's it, it's definitely worth checking out if you haven't seen it. I think it's the one that kind of gets lost in the shuffle of the more like flashy title ones that we'll be getting into in a bit. Yeah, I always liked it because the score is really cool. It's got this crazy jazzy score, and uh, I think it's for Riz Ortolani, and it's, um, that kind of gives it a really weird um 60s swinging kind of vibe you know and of course marissa mellon and the the wig and the costumes and everything the scenes in the, uh, the roaring 20s club when they go in where she's dancing you know and there's like naked chicks on um trapezes above the bar and it's pretty pretty wild it's pretty cool for when it came out and there's also like you know, some implied, like, you know, you mentioned erotic thriller. There's, like, sort of implied uh, oral sex and stuff, which is seems pretty crazy to me for 69. I'd have to go back and think about it for a while to think of another movie that had sort of um, that, like, racy of or suggestive of sex scenes from that era. I mean, that's the thing that is kind of most interesting about all these Fulci Giallos, even when we get to, like, New York Ripper and stuff. He's, he's definitely sex-driven, even starting with this one. And obviously, you know, that's always been in a lot of Giallos for the most part, but, like, these seem to be, like, front and center. And I guess that that's good lead into the next one because the debauchery that's kind of hinted at in Perversion Story comes more... Fully formed in his next yellow, which is a lizard in women's skin, aka Schizoid from 1971. Stars Florinda Balkin, from who was in Investigations of a Citizen Above Suspicion, Jean Sorelligan, or Jean Sorelligan, and Sylvia Monti, who was in the um, Fifth Chord. And then you have uh, also, in addition to Jean Sorel or John Sorel coming back, you also have uh, the other Demorier brother, um, Alberto de Mendoza, who plays the yeah. shitty ass brother in in uh, one on top of the other that you know fucks over John Sorrell, uh or tries to anyway. And then uh, he comes back in this one as a detective. A couple of du- of the dudes from from one on top of the other that come back for this movie. Uh, one thing I've been noticing as I've been going through Fulci's career and like. I kind of picked up on this when we were going through the zombie quartet, but like he does like to reuse certain actors and certain composers and cinematographers, usually kind of tied up to like whatever theme he's going for. I noticed in the Giallos, he has like, I think he uses the same co writer on at least three out of the four of the 70s Giallos, and he kind of flips around a couple things. It, for those of you who haven't seen it, I'll just go over the plot. This one takes place in London. Carol Hammond, who's played by Florinda Balkin, lives in a fancy building with her husband, Frank Hammond, and her stepdaughter, Joan Hammond. Carol is the beloved daughter of a wealthy, prominent lawyer and politician, Edmund Brighton, and Frank is his partner in his office and has a love affair with Deborah. Carol's next-door neighbor, Julia Duar, is a depraved woman that promotes parties with drugs and orgies. Carol has a psychoanalyst session with Dr. Kerr and is intrigued with a nightmare where she stabs Julia to death three times with a couple watching the murder. When Julia is found dead in her apartment, the efficient inspector Corvin and his partner, Sergeant Brandon, is assigned to investigate. All the evidence points to Carol, but was it a dream or reality? This is something we talked about when we were talking about the zombie films, is the dream nightmare logic. And I'm not sure if this is the beginning of it, Fulci, but there's a lot of it in this one. And specifically, like, going over those kind of surrealist, like, nightmare scenes, which are really, really horrifying. Unlike those 80s films, his jallos all make perfect sense in the end. They're like really <laughs> some. They're actually some of the most cleverly <laughs> plotted of all Jallos, and and you rarely get to the end and go, "Come on, what the fuck was that?" Like Fulci's <laughs> films make sense. 
they don't they don't cheat you know i've seen uh is like ernesto gastaldi and one of the guys who wrote shitloads of jalos saying you know there's a lot of a lot of jalos where they cheat at the end the killer is like somebody who never fucking should have figured into it that you'd never be able to figure out was the killer and it's just kind of a cheap way out and the fulci films are like really fucking densely plotted and um especially well this one maybe not especially but this is this one is very typical of that you know it's got the father and john sorrell like uh, i'm sorry um when i say the father i mean um Florinda Balkan's father and her, Jean Sorel, Jean Sorel's girlfriend, his daughter from another marriage, uh, the hippies that are hanging out next door. There's like all these people that could possibly be the killer. And every single one of them has a legitimate reason, or at least a legitimate, you know, the, uh, they have a place in the plot that could put them in the killer's gloves. I think out of all the Fulci Giallos, this is my favorite of, at least from the 70s. Actually, yeah, I'll just say this is my favorite Fulci Giallo because he does so much with it. The DP on this was Luigi Cavillier. Four years later, he shot Dario Argento's Deep Red, which is kind of interesting because you see little things that, like, I think he might have borrowed and used in Deep Red that you see in the lizard and women's skin. Not intentionally, but just stylistically. And on top of it, it has like one of the absolute banger in your McConey scores. Killer editing. Um, yeah. I don't, I'm not. Uh, one of the editors, or editors was uh, Vincenzo Tomasi, but I don't know who the other guy was. But um, the there's all these like, you know, like crazy psychedelic, like strobe uh, sort of edits and cool lighting. It's fucking great. Yeah, it's definitely my favorite. The Morricone score, uh, like you said, is totally banging. There's a, another infamous thing that's connected to this movie, which is the special effects by Carlo Rambaldi, future Oscar winner. For those of you who don't know, it's, there's a one of the dream nightmare sequences in the movie involves some hanging dogs in a lab that have been like cut open and they're just kind of writhing. The effect was so shocking and so real that Fulci and Carlo Rivaldi had to go to court and prove that those were actual special effects and not real dogs they had murdered on camera. It's still pretty gruesome to see nowadays. We were talking, again, we already did the zombie ones, but we were talking about like Fulci effects and like even when he had things that were obviously fake, he knew how to use them well. This effect is second to none. It's it's still horrifying even to watch it now, as you just said. You know, in addition to the dog scene, there's the amazing bat scene. It, it's kind of cheap with fake bats and everything, but it totally works and it's manic because it just goes on and on and build, you know, just super intense the entire time relentless speaking of those bats when the movie was released by aip in the u.s they changed the name to schizoid which isn't that it's not an inaccurate (laughs) title but like the big selling point was like they made it sold as a fucking bat movie for some reason just based (laughs) on that sequence i remember that poster there's like a post a bat on the poster or something right yeah it's like how to not sell the film, but like the the other thing that I learned about the AIP version, they actually went back and had more of the like the sexual and like the orgy and the psychedelic stuff. Oh. I guess to cover up the gore. I remember having the British uh, pre-cert VHS. <clears throat> I didn't have an actual copy of it, but I had a dupe of it, and it was missing a lot of sex stuff. You know, people started like a midnight video, and Craig Ledbetter from European Trash Cinema started like finding like dutch tapes and shit and like cutting in all the all the scenes at the beginning like the the scene with with uh florida balkan and anita strindberg at the beginning of the film was like butchered and then butchered back together by enterprising bootleggers (laughs) including ryan and i i think made our own uh composite print of that one Kids today will never know the joys of watching a VCR to VCR edited tape to get the most nope. uncut. I yeah. it, it reminds me, I for some reason I thought this was a good idea. I took a copy of Videodrome that I had and then I hooked up actually it was a three VCR setup. So I was doing Videodrome and I had a tape version of the TV version that has all the different footage and I tried to build my <laughs> own composite cut of everything. Kind of want to watch it just to see how close it was. I thought it was good at times. Like, yeah, I got this fully uncut video drone, but like it. 
probably look like shit. Uh, I had one of those too that was like floating around at the conventions back in the uh, late eighties or something. Um, that was like the all the TV footage from Videodrome cut into the uh, home video director's cut. Right? It was the VHS? Yeah. yeah, the VHS was the director's cut because I think in the when Videodrome was released, it got an R, but like then Universal pulled things out of it that past the sensors it was a weird thing but we'll save that for another day going in universal's yeah. mishandling of video <laughs> as we move on to fulci it's funny enough we'll be talking about cronenberg in a little bit but not quite yet and it relates to fulci uh the next giallo which was a year later in 1972 is maybe my second favorite of his four 70s era giallos it's don't torture a duckling again florinda balkan is in it Barbara Bechet, who you've seen in tons of Eurocrime, Giallos, and all kinds of... Boy, have we seen her. Oh, yeah, we have seen her. (laughs) And, of course, the great Thomas Milan's in this one, too. And just to give you a little plot point, a reporter and a kind of nympho woman try to solve a series of child killings in a remote southern Italian town rife with superstition and distrust of outsiders. It's got a Riz Ortolani score, which is fantastic. And again, there's a lot of weird sexual stuff in this movie. And a lot of it has to do with Barbara Boucher being completely naked, trying to seduce like a young boy that's clearly underage. (laughs) That's a great scene. It's a great scene. And again, Fulci got pulled in the court. They did two giallos back to back. He had to go to court over and it was over this scene because the, the courts thought he had literally stuck a child in a room with naked Barbara Pichet. And he, <laughs> ba- he basically had to prove that like it was a dwarf that was the stand-in. But The kid does a great job acting because he's uh, got the shaky hands and Sweaty brow. He looks. He looks like he's in the presence of a naked Barbara Boucher. You know, this one's got some witchcraft. It's got Fulci really calling out Catholicism and organized religion. It's you know, it's got some old world versus new world. It's got it. It's again, this is another dense giallo. And you know, Florinda Balkan plays kind of a witch, and she's doing like kind of voodoo stuff. And I guess obviously because she's doing that, she's the prime suspect, at least at the beginning, of being the child murderer, which we find out is not the case. Right. Mark Perel's in there as well. That's an interesting life story. Rather sadly short one. I actually don't know that, if you want to share that. Oh, he just, he drank himself to death at like age 34. Can you believe that? Jesus. I've seen him in so many films, and then like he was dead at 34. I'm not sure how old he was when he or what year that was or anything. Uh, I just remember reading that. and He died in 83. So wow. he was like 22 or something, 21 years old when he made um, Don't Torture Duckling. That's insane. So this movie has a lot of stuff. There's a lot of dead children in it, which is creepy and sad. We were talking about this a little bit. Um, I screened this with um, Al Sweet Alice for a cinematic void. It was kind of a church night, as you will. I think I even specifically asked if I could do it on a Sunday. It, the other thing this movie has, it has one of the two epic dummy drops that Lucio Fulci ever did. And what I like, I love dummy drops. Anyone who knows me, I, the first thing I did for Beyond Fest was a dummy drop reel. And I love Fulci's dummy drops because he'll put fucking squibs on the dummies' faces. So when they're going down and they're hitting the side of the mountain, like their face is exploding and there's gore in it. I think it's like if you're going to do a dummy drop, you might as well blow the fuck out of the dummy while it's going down, too. Well, one of the things that's cool about Italian filmmaking or that's also great about um, Asian filmmaking from that era, they obviously didn't always have the means to do it like Hollywood perfect, but they just did it anyways. And for me, that's good enough. Like I, if I get the, the gist, that's all I need. I don't need to be, I don't need to be shown like a CGI perfect quality, you know, realistic death every time the dummy drop in this film, obviously where the person is getting their face shaved off as they bounce off the cliff on the way down. 
very similar thing happens in the other film we'll talk about um even less convincingly maybe than in this one which is weird because i think that movie probably had a much bigger budget than this one but um the dummy drop is definitely not as good as the one in don't torture a duckling i agree they're both i mean this one's just a tour de force <laughs> it's kind of like the the way he just does it it's just i because i think with blizzard in this is when he started like honing in on his like talent for showing violence it seems weird to say, especially in this day and age. Fulci had an eye and a style to, like, show people dying. And, like, you know, there's a lot of deaths in Giallo, but, like, Fulci just had a knack for it. Where it's, like, it carries from his Giallos to his, like, Westerns to, like, something like Contraband to, you know, obviously the zombie movies and some of his later stuff. He just had an eye for killing people in very horrible ways. <laughs> Not just violence, but, like unbelievable cruelty in in some cases you know for the apocalypse and contraband and of course all of those 80s zombie movies come to mind but i mean contraband the first i'd already seen all of his zombie movies and i was still my fucking jaw was on the floor when i saw contraband that is a fucking brutal movie i don't want to like put anything any words or ideas like behind Fulci with that kind of stuff. But it's just like, I think it just like, he found a pocket where it's like, that's where he knew how to express his art. I think maybe he had a lot of resentment and anger. They just had to get out and he worked it out on screen. One brutal death at a time. Or in some cases yeah. like contraband, many deaths at a time. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was just his way of like, you know, one upping the competition. Like, um, contraband is a pretty late in the game for you know the Pleziatechi crime film style. Um, I, that's like eighty one or eighty two, right? Eighty, yeah, eighty one, somewhere in that era, somewhere around the time that he was making all the infamous zombie films. So yeah, it was kind of late to be making uh, a Pleziatechi, but he just loaded it with fucking unbelievable cruelty and violence. I kind of want to revisit that once. So I'm definitely going to do it on the list. I, I just remember the ending where it's just like that long, it's like the Godfather, like cleaning house at the, you know, the end of the Godfather where they go and whack everyone, yeah. except this is all like in 10 minutes. And then Fulci's one of the guys with the gun. So he pops up and starts fucking shooting people too. Yeah. I won't ruin it for you, but there's some really cruel, non-politically correct scenes in that film as well. Ah, <laughs> <sighs> Bless you, Fulci. Bless you. Yeah. I think one so, involves a, a freebase torch, and the other one involves a, a gangster listening to his wife being sodomized over the phone. I don't want to laugh at that stuff, but, like, yeah, Fulci loved his sadism. Yeah. Very, very deranged. <laughs> but it's fucking awesome. You know? I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's hard to, like, square up some of these films especially when we start talking about the new york river but um uh i would say contraband is probably just as fucked up as maybe even more so than new york river yeah i, I need to revisit that a revisit it's it's yeah. a fucked up movie i just remember when i first saw and just blown away it's just like it might as well have been one of its zombie movies i mean it was in definitely yeah. in that pocket oh yeah it's got just as much gore as one of his zombie films that's for sure I've been kind of waiting for it to come out on Blu-ray uh, to watch it again. I remember having, you know, the VHS many years ago, and then I bought the. I probably still have the Blue Underground DVD, and I probably have never watched it. I can't. I can't say I've watched that movie in the last twenty plus years, but um, it, I remember it vividly. <laughs> now. Stepping away from Fulci and Contraband, we're going to go back to the Jallos and his last one of the 70s, which actually came five years after um, Don't Torture a Duckling, which is the Psychic, a.k.a. Seven Notes in Black. I prefer Seven Notes in Black because that's the more Jallo-esque title, but, I, I, you know, obviously it's probably best known as the Psychic. I had never seen the American VHS tape. I didn't see that film until I got a copy of the Japanese VHS tape which has the English title on the screen of Murder to the Tune of the Seven Black Notes. That's a wow. pretty big mouthful. And it takes up most of the screen when the, when the title comes <laughs> out. 
I love Italians and their overlong titles for movies sometimes. I don't know where that title came from, but uh must have been, must have been the British release title. Because here, as you said, it was called The Psychic. Maybe it was just a title they slapped on there for the film market or something. But Murder to the Tune of the Seven Black Notes is the title card on the Japanese VHS and on the, um, the new is it Scorpion, I believe, that put it out on Blu-ray. All these new Blu-rays have opened my eyes to is that you know these cinematographers and directors from that era not just the italians but even spanish as well even just franco the films look there there's much more artistry to them than you ever could see in like a washed out vhs dupe you know that's panned and scanned i mean like the cinematography in paul nash movies is actually pretty fucking good and uh, I never realized that because what few Paul Nashie films you could see in America were all from like budget labels. And then the other ones that you would buy at conventions were like had big fucking Greek or Dutch subtitles going across the screen. And they were like a pal to NTSC conversion and colors were weak and bad tracking. Just so many, so many obstacles in, in the way of like seeing the art in these films. Like I've, you know, it's it's amazing. And this one really fucking shines on Blu-ray. Uh, the Murder to the Tune of Seven Black Notes. Looks fucking incredible. And again, it's another one of these, like, the last two, Don't Torture a Duckling and Lizard Woman's Skin, that's really fucking densely plotted. You know, there's one, one person gets murdered at the beginning of the movie or has already been murdered. You know, their body is discovered. And then, you know... 90 minutes later you're still they're they're still like fucking yanking you know you're basically fucking you know clearing the the forest for you to see who did it i mean this one i know this came probably later in the um giallo cycle at at this point like suspiria had came out so argento had moved on to it and i guess Maybe it was the Italian cycle to try more supernatural oriented. So, I mean, it does have a little bit in it because obviously Jennifer O'Neill, who stars this movie, who is also in David Cronenberg's Scanners. See, it all comes around. <laughs> um, you know, she's a psychic and she witnesses a death and tries to figure out what that death is. And also, I, it has that little girl from Deep Red at the beginning during the dummy drop, which, again, not as good as the Don't Torture Duckling one, but it's fine. It's yeah, it's pretty epic actually, just because it's so fucking ridiculous. I, I I think it also helps that he does those crash zooms into like the little girl's eyes as her mom's going down the fucking cliff. Yeah. It, it's got that score too that's like it's Fabio Fritzi working with Vince Tempera and Franco Bixio or Bizio. I don't know really much about those guys. But it's very Fritzy in places and it's also almost like Got some goblin-esque vibes to it at times. A fucking great um, score in that film. I don't hear that many people talk about it. Never really did. Especially back in the old days, it was like really only available as the psychic, which was just kind of like yawn, you know, boring title. No one really talked about it. And when you were at the conventions and trading tapes with people, it wasn't one that really got a lot of love. It was like the early Jalos and then, of course, the late 70s, early 80s you know, gore fests that everybody was like, that's what Fulci was known for. <clears throat> now that all this stuff has come out on disc, it's like really easy to see that the guy is an artiste. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've always kind of thought that like, I've always found him more interesting than Dario Argento. Actually, I like, I mean, Dario Argento's great films are great, but he's got way less great movies than Fulci. Fulci's got a fucking shitload of great movies. And, Argento has a handful, you know? We talked a little bit of this when we were talking to Matthew about the zombie stuff and, like, Fulci's, like, sort of one-sided professional rivalry with um, Argento, where Argento never really acknowledged him, but, like, I think Fulci always had a chip, and I think a lot of it had to do with that Fulci's, like, I'm a fucking artist, too, why am I not getting the credit kind of thing. He also, like, was far more prolific he made a giallo before Argento made a giallo. Granted, when Argento did make a giallo, he fucking blew it up. I mean, he, you know, Bird with the Crystal Plumage is a masterpiece and obviously was a game changer in Italy. But I would imagine Fulci was probably like, I'm fucking 
you know, older than this guy. I've made more movies. This guy gets all the credit. And uh, I could see some jealousy being there. And I can also see why Argento was like, who the fuck is that? I don't need, <laughs> I don't even need, why do I even need to think about this guy? You know, Argento was a huge fucking success in Italy. And Fulci was never really considered to be a great director while he was alive, I guess. I mean, yeah, he was starting to get celebrated towards the end of his career, you know, like when Fangoria brought him to New York and, you know, he did a big uh, show in London, I think, around the same time. Uh, and then, you know, obviously at some point him and Argento became pals and they were going to make a film together and Fulci died. It won't be on the zombie episode, but when we were talking to Matthew, I did a I did a comparison of Romero's four zombie movies, which is Night, Dawn, Day, and Land, and compared the Fulci set of four, which is Zombie, Gates of Hell, Beyond, and House by the Cemetery. And obviously, you have to join our Patreon to hear this one, but I pretty much said Fulci edges Romero at the end of the day. And it came down to a couple of things. Is one, I think Fulci's a better director than Romero. I'm not, and I'll, I'll say this here, and I said it previously that out of the eight films, I think Dawn of the Dead is the best, but then Beyond is a really close number two, and Night is iconic, but then Fulci was more consistent, and he kind of did more, but again, just going to leave that out there, and I also think there's a good case to say that Fulci was a better director than Argento, just like you said, just based on the fact that like he could do more, he did more, and just because he kind of fell into like what was considered the craftsman director of Italy, like Sergio Martino or Umberto Lenzi or even how Mario Bava was perceived before he got all the accolades after he passed on. It's just like Fulci could direct his ass off. He could do like stunning visuals. He could tell a story. He could make a comedy. He could do a Western and he can get, make some of the Grizzlies fucking horror ever put the screen. I mean, that's a, you know, getting off topic maybe a little bit, but uh, yeah, if I were to throw my two cents in, I would, I find Fulci's films to be far more watchable than Rewatchable, I should say, than than Romero for sure. I mean, I love Night of the Living Dead more so than Dawn of the Dead. Even though Dawn of the Dead was the film that like got me, like turned me into a gore hound. I was so freaked out by that film. I had to dissect it like <laughs> technically to sort of bring myself down from the horror of the violence and gore and sort of like a, you know, documentary cinema verite style of it. It just freaked me out. Like it was so realistic and gory and violent and shocking that it blew me away. So I I, I was like, what, 13, I think, when, when it came out. And I saw it in the theater when it was a new release. And then I saw Zombie like six months or a year later when that came out. And uh, so those two films were played heavily into my, you know, turning into the nerd that i am today but uh <laughs> to be honest I, I can go back to zombie much easier i mean one of the things i like about fulci all of his films is something that um john waters said which is you know there's no fucking reason for a movie to be more than 90 minutes long <laughs> you know like unless you're telling you know some like fucking grand story i think we can all agree that the godfather benefits from being over 90 minutes long but you know, when you're telling a horror story or you're making a fucking exploitation movie, 90 minutes is good. And Fulci kind of like extends out there once in a while to like 100 minutes. But uh, rarely does he get outside of that fucking window. And Romero is making like fucking two and a half hour long zombie movies and shit. You know, and it's kind of like kind of unnecessary to be to be honest for Dawn of the Dead to be as long as it is. I can see why the Argentos wanted to, uh, you know, trim it down and make it a little more um quick paced but uh fulci's movies uh the one we're talking about right now is like you know fucking 90 minute ish you know jello and there's a lot that happens he could still cram a lot of fucking you know events into that 90 minutes i mean i mean that's kind of the beauty of his giallos because like there's other giallos that came out earlier in this period that just like they just too long they get a little too convoluted and like as we've said Fulci's films are dense they pay off and they're not wasted because yeah I mean I think maybe the longest one might be don't torture a duckling out of the four and it's not by much it might that might be the 100 minute one I, I could be wrong but lizard's like 100 100 and 
105, somewhere around there. I can't remember. I think Don't, don't Torture Duckling, if I remember um, the back of the uh, Dutch video box, I think it's 99 minutes. So, kind of getting there. They don't feel... None of those movies feel long, which is like yeah. sometimes the curse of some giallos where they just... They could be they could be 80 minutes and they feel like three hours. Whereas Fulci... And again, this is why I think he's underrated as a director and a true artist. It's like he can do so much in a reasonable running time. Another thing that uh, these films have that makes them easy to watch or, or sort of raises the quality is the English dubs are pretty good on all of the movies we've talked about so far. I mean, New York Ripper's maybe a little more amusing, the dubbing. But the dubbing on um, Murder to the Tune of Seven Black Notes or uh, and um, One on Top of the Other, Lizard or Woman's Skin, Don't Torture Duckling, all have really good English dubs on them. I... And there's something also I picked up on watching the zombie movies. I think Fulci, like, they basically, if they had an English actor, obviously they're speaking English. I think they had, like, the Italians and maybe the Spanish and other, like, non-English speaking actors do phonetic English or something close to it. Because, like, they do all have pretty good dubs. It doesn't call attention to it being dubbed. Oh, if, if I'm... If I remember correctly from the uh, Stephen or Stefan... Is it Stefan or Stephen Thrower? Uh, his Fulci book talks about when he did one on top of the other was like the first film where he ever shot in America. That was his first American location film. I think from there he was like infatuated with Hollywood and America. And so his films were made for like English speaking market after that. Cause previously he had made shitloads of like comedies and a couple westerns right and then yeah when he did one on top and moving forward he became a different director and i said this when we did the zombie episode like when he came to america he used his locations well he didn't it wasn't just like hey i'm in the u.s like he specifically whatever his team was doing like they found really good locations wherever they're at so when they did cut back to it interior at, at the rome studio it all felt like the same thing yeah Oh, I mean the, you know, San Francisco, Reno, uh, San Quentin thing in One on Top, obviously the Beyond and City of the Living Dead and House by the Cemetery all have amazing locations. Before we move on, is there anything else we need to cover in the psychic? Other than the fact that it's just great. I mean, I think it's kind of an underrated, I think I, I would suggest anybody listening to this, like seek this movie out because it really is. Honestly, I've, it's probably in easily in the top 20 shallows for sure. Maybe higher. I don't know. It's a really good film. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, I think three of these are clearly top 20 giallos. I think Perversion Story might be the one that's on the outside looking in. But I think Lizard, Duckling, and um, Seven Notes in Black all could have valid strong cases to be in like that top tier of giallo. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, we're going to take a deep dive into Fulci's sleazy 80s giallos on the Cinematic Void podcast. Every 10 or 15 years, a film is produced that is so overwhelming, so forceful in its impact, that it becomes deeply embedded in the mind and changes for all time those who see it. We think the psychic is such a film. Its intensity may be more than some wish to be exposed to, and those people should be forewarned. Just imagine how frightening it is to suddenly find that you can see into the future, and how much more terrifying it is to see in that future your own murder. And then, worst of all, no one will believe you. Jennifer O'Neill is the psychic. Welcome back. We are talking Lucio Fulci Giallos on the Cinematic Podcast with our friend Scott Carlson. We're now moving on to some of his sleazy 80s era Giallos. I guess they also kind of fall into the slasher territory. This first one's from 1982, which was from that pocket era where Fulci was 
making his zombie movies and Manhattan Baby and even Contraband was all in that era. It is maybe the most infamous movie in his filmography. It is The New York Ripper, stars Jack Headley, Paolo Malco, who's the dad from House by the Cemetery, Alexander Delacala, who's um, best known for being in Dr. Butcher, M.D., a.k.a. Zombie Holocaust, and, of course, again, poor Daniela Doria, who dies a horrible death in this movie. Probably the worst out of all the Fulci movies, and she did puke up sheep guts. I mean, basically the plot is it's a New York police detective teams up with a college psychoanalyst to track down a vicious serial killer that is randomly stalking and killing various young women in New York City, and he happens to talk like a duck. Or should I say, like, Donald Duck. <laughs> now, when I first saw this movie, I just assumed that it was, like, whoever was dubbing it was just fucking with everyone and just dubbing them as a duck as a joke. But apparently in Italy, this is how it was. This is how it was always intended. And I guess it does pay off the end when you get and see the little girl with the little duck thing or whatever. Where do we begin on this one? Well, with the dog playing fetch uh, and bringing back <laughs> a decomposed hand. And... Yeah. Uh, and and the guy, when the old guy bends down and says, oh, my bones, but everybody thinks he says, oh, my balls. <laughs> I actually, when Blue Underground put out their 4K restoration, I showed the DCP. I did it as a New York sleaze triple feature with this um, Nightmares in the Damaged Brain, even though most of that movie takes place in Florida. But hey, you see 42nd Street, so it counts. And Abel Ferrara's Driller Killer. And... I'm not going to lie. I was a little concerned about showing this one because it's really, really not PC. It's I don't know who the real audience is for it, but like to my surprise, everyone loved it. And a lot of people hadn't seen it before. And this is where Fulci gets the misogynist label. It's really violent. It's sexually violent. There's all, again, more weird sexual stuff going on in this movie. And there's a guy that talks like a fucking duck. I don't even know how to get, really get into this because it's just like, I, I love this movie, but I feel sleazy for saying it. <laughs> it's definitely not one that I would watch every day or recommend to just anyone. But yeah, I don't mind uh, an uncomfortable, sleazy, violent, dark film. The The surprising thing was when the movie ended, I had a bunch of women come up to me and was like, this movie is great. Thank you for showing it. And I was like, Really? He's like, yeah, it's just like it, it was funny. And it's like, I don't this is where I think Fulci caught the misogynist label for making this movie. And like, he's obviously a woman hater. And maybe there's someone in there. Maybe there's not. I, I also think that in a way, Fulci was kind of like making fun of like elevated thrillers, specifically those of Dario Argento and maybe even Brian De Palma in a way, just saying, oh, you guys think you can do this? Fuck you. Watch me do it. And of course, with Fulci, in that period, everything's got to be excessive. Like that first, I think it's the first murder you see on camera when that girl's on the, the ferry going across and she's like in that guy's car, right? Lipstick, whenever. And then like the killer like kills her in the car and it's like gruesome. I mean, it's brutal. And then there's other stuff in it. There's um Alexander DeCullis character. Apparently her and her husband have a thing where she can go out and have sex or go to live sex shows and record it for him because mm -hmm. I guess he can't get it up. And it leads into one of the most infamous scenes in anyone's filmography. I mean, it doesn't get the publicity of Shark versus Zombie or the splinter in the eye or the power drill through John Morgan's head, but it's the foot fucking scene. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I first saw New York Ripper, I saw an unrated, I think it was Vidmark put it out in the U.S., VHS. And the interesting thing is, uncut meant all the gore was intact, but they cut all the sex stuff out. So, like, the live sex show stuff and, of course, the foot scene. I heard, like, there's a more uncut thing of New York Ripper, and I thought, like, oh, man, there's more gore in it. I can't, what else could they possibly put in there? It was <laughs> none of the gore. It, so... Basically, Alexandra Decala is at this bar and she's trying to like pick up on some guys or I don't know whatever she's doing, trying to record it. And like these dudes kind of like sit down with her and one of them starts like using his foot to like stimulate her under the table. And then it just goes full on like big toe penetration. And it's <laughs> ridiculous. It's sleazy. It's I can't recall ever seeing anything like that in a movie or at least in a like horror movie like that. I mean, the thing about New York Ripper is like 
Fulci wants to present this ultra sleazy, scummy New York, which is basically the audience he was making the movie for, which was 42nd Street. Yeah, it's very 42nd Street. There's no doubt about it. There's a lot of interesting things in there. There's a lot of things to unpack. And then there's, again, Daniela Dora, who I, I, we haven't, we never figured out if Fulci really liked her or just hated her. She gets a very brutal death in this movie. It is one of the nastiest fucking murder scenes ever put on screen. And it's like Fulci likes to take his time with these murders. And it's just like, it's just beyond sadistic. Yeah. This is one you uh, put on a, like a mixtape for me a long time ago. Like this one and maybe uh, Tenebrae, Cemetery Man. I guess you threw me a bunch of Italian stuff. Yeah, this one blew my mind at a young age for sure. That's <laughs> what you do. You corrupt your friends. I mean, it, it's amazing that like we live in a day and age that there's a 4K restoration of this movie. Yeah. It's coming out on a Dolby Vision, Dolby Atmos uh, disc in a few weeks. Jesus Christ. I, I'll say as sleazy and as, as mean and as ugly as this movie is, like it's it's a well done movie. It's a well done giallo. It's, if you want to label it as a slasher, it's obviously a classier slasher than say Friday the thirteenth and has even more plot than Friday the thirteenth. I think uh, you know yeah, well, I'm, I'm a I'm really not a fan of those slasher movies. I, I get a lot of grief from people for not liking Friday the thirteenth and not really even I don't even really give a sh- too much of a shit about Halloween too much. I mean, I don't dislike it, but I don't place it <clears throat> as highly as a lot of people do. I would rather watch New York Ripper myself than Halloween. Uh, again, I would probably, uh, although I, w- I would say I would probably put this at the bottom of the six pack. Yeah. This would be the beer I mean, that I would save for last and drink it if I was still thirsty after I drank the other five. I mean, it compared to like the uh, the ones from the '70s, like this is just on a different level. And it, like, I, I do feel like Fulci was definitely really pushing as far as he could go because, like, I don't think he made another movie as extreme as as violent as as like nasty as this movie afterwards. I mean, there might be little gory moments and say like conquest and things like that, but like, I think this was just the epitome of like pushing the envelope to the point that the envelope is now crumpled up and useless, so to speak. Well, as far as like, you know, making a really um, sadistic film, I don't think too many people ever pushed it this far ever. You know, it's like you said, it's borderline misogynistic, which probably makes it seem even more extreme than it, than it is. I mean, there's a lot of gory, you know, hack them up stabby movies, but this movie is fucking Got a, a vicious streak to it. I also think there's a sense of humor to it, which I it seems strange to say, especially about this movie, but I think it's also intentional in it. But I also don't think the usually when you use humor and horror is like the like give a release of a laugh or something like that. I think it's just yeah. like it's almost like a smart ass humor in this movie. And just like he's trolling us. I mean, he really is. And then you gotta think of Apollo Mako's like psychoanalyst, like it's kind of interesting because like there's a scene that just shows that he's gay because he goes to the newsstand and buys like gay porn and just walks off. And that's the scene. And it's never really spoken of. And I, I think it's just interesting that like he made that choice. Does it have a point in the movie? But it's just like, well, he's he's a gay man. He's a psychoanalyst. He likes porn and he's going to help solve this crime. <laughs> like that's basically how it's presented. I also think um, I'm pretty sure Michele Sove, the director of Cemetery Man and um, Stage Fright, he has a cameo. I think he's the guy at the newsstand that sells the porn. Or it might be a different scene. I know he's somewhere in there. He was working on a lot of these movies at that time. Yeah. He was flipping between being either Argento or Lamberto Bava and Fulci's assistant or second unit director. That's a way to cut your teeth on the New York Ripper. Now... Katarina McCall, who was in The Beyond, Gates of Hell, and House by the Cemetery, was originally offered the role in this movie, and she took one look at the script and like, nope. <laughs> He's like, I, I see where this is going. I love you, Lucio. I'm not fucking doing it. I guess she would play, she would have played the um, girlfriend to the killer. And this one also has my favorite Fulci cameo. I think he plays, I, he plays the police captain in this one. And I always like when Fulci pops up in his movies and just does little one-off things. And he's like the, like, too old. 
have enough of this shit solve the crime like police captain in this movie. Mm-hmm. So we're going to skip ahead two years and we're going to go to, I guess this would be the last Giallo, a little bit of slasher in it, which is Murder Rock from 84. Stars Olga Carlados, who's best known for catching a giant splinter in her eye and faulty zombie. Also has Ray Lovelock in it. And I guess Murder Rock was at different points sold as like a slasher version of Flashdance. I think there's even uh, posters where it's called Slashdance. Yeah, it definitely, <laughs> at some point it was marketed as that. I just want to see what your Flash, no, Flashdance came out of 83. So yeah, Murder Rock, Slashdance, that, that makes complete sense. Yeah. I haven't seen this one in a while. And, you know, I it gets kind of a bad rap because I feel like it doesn't, I think it gets a bad rap because it's not as excessive as the other Fulci ones, but I think there's some good stuff in it. It's all those like giant needles, if I'm not mistaken. The really the only reason that this film deserves a bad rap is for the shitty fucking music by Keith Emerson of Emerson Lake and Palmer. It's not, it's not good. I mean, it's like really shitty disco, and it's 1984. You know, I mean, it's not like flash dance and fame type of music. It's it's pretty shit. It's not Michael Cimbello's Maniac. It's like fucking brain draniac. <laughs> fucking terrible. But the movie is actually pretty fucking good, and it's got a, a great cast. It's well acted. Um, it's got a fucking logical, well put together story. It's only eighty eight minutes long. It moves right along, and uh, it all makes fucking sense. It's actually a very solid shallow. I can't, I can't really fucking rag on this movie too much. I, I kind of wrote it off the first time I saw it because there's like a 15 minute segment at the beginning where they're like dancing and singing and shit, and there's like the opening credit have like dudes break dancing and shit and like high fiving and. You know, it's like a combination of every trendy fucking dance that was going on. You got some flash dance, you got some break in. It just takes it's it's pretty embarrassing. Like the first 10 minutes of the movie are like ridiculous. And once it gets past that, it actually just settles down into a pretty good shallow. And by that point, it's only fucking 78 minutes long. So it's really just fucking banging along. And it's, you know, the murders are cool. I mean, it's not gory, really, but it does have a lot of um, exposed breasts and, you know, ornate hat pin murders and um, great looking cast. The, you know, fucking everybody's pretty in the movie, guys and the girls. You got Ray Lovelock in there, which, you know, is a fucking huge plus for me. He's one of my all time favorites. Um, Always brings something to the table. Claudio Casanelli is in it, who... Didn't live much longer than that. He died while he was making uh, Hands of Steel, which was what oh, yeah. a year later or something. I think it was a little later than that because, like, because Hands of Steel was the movie before he made, uh, or Sergio Martino went and did American Rickshaw. So I think that was like '88 or '89. So maybe it was like '86 or '87. So maybe it was hmm. another couple years. Yeah, um, you've also got uh, obviously you mentioned uh, Olga Carlos was also Prince's mom in Purple Rain, in addition to uh, getting famously <laughs> fucking violated in Zombie. He was also Prince's mom. But uh, <laughs> also, the, there's a guy named um, Cosimo Sinieri, who, I believe, he's in New York Ripper. I think he plays one of, the, one of the detectives in New York Ripper, one of the investigators. And he's also in um, another film that we'll talk about, called um manhattan baby he's got a great role in that one but yeah i don't know great cast solid little fucking movie i don't have anything bad to say about murder rock other than that the the music isn't very good uh i actually have that on vinyl and i've never listened to it i think i bought it as a dollar record i was like oh, that's kind of cool i saw murder rock i i think i blocked out the score and then i bought it for a dollar and then i put it on it's like oh yeah that's why it's a dollar I think it's still on my shelf. So one interesting thing I found out about <laughs> this movie, it was supposed to be a beginning of a new Giallo trilogy for Fulci. He was supposed to do another two, I guess, music dance themed. One was called Killer Samba, and the other was Thrilling Blues. And it never <laughs> happened because Fulci had his stroke, and that's when things kind of took a turn. And 
it's kind of unfortunate because like I would like to see Fulci do his like dance trio of Chialos. Yeah, you know, come to think of it, this is probably like the last movie where with a straight face you can say this is a fucking good movie. Because after that, they get a little, they get pretty fucking hokey. You know, there's some amazing shit in the movies that came after. I mean, um, you know, there's some show-stopping moments in Enigma and uh, Mer- Demonia. And, but, I mean, those movies are, something happened, you know. He obviously didn't have the same level of support financially or talent-wise around him when he made all those other movies. But, like, Murder Rock is still, you know... He's got his editor. He's got, um, you know, great cinematographer. He has, you know, Keith Emerson doing music, who is a big name. Um, even though the score is corny, it is Keith Emerson. And uh, and he's got a great cast, which he probably never had again after this, you know. So Murder Rock is, I can't remember, what's the next Fulci film? Like you said, he went into Poor Elf. Didn't make a film again, went until like Devil's Honey, maybe. And uh, when he comes back there, um, it's it's just a different level of quality. Like Murder Rock is a slick movie. Nothing Fulci did after that is slick. A lot of rough around the edges, kind of messy, fucking listless films that aren't necessarily completely bad. They're just not. They're not good. I would fucking stake my reputation on the fact that Murder Rock is a good movie. You were right, right after Murder Rock, I guess two years after Murder Rock, he did Devil's Honey, which is a weird, I guess, another erotic thriller of sorts. It's yeah. got some interesting stuff, but it's also got some not so good stuff. And then 87 through 88 was Enigma, Zombie 3, which he never actually finished, Touch of Death, and couple tv movies and then 1990 hit with probably his last hurrah almost which is cat in the brain and demonia yeah and then he i don't don't know he also like uh supervised or um produced a couple of films in there like the ghosts of sodom and uh the red monks i think they were tv movies maybe i think there's actually scenes from both of those movies that you know like in nightmare concert he or Cat in the Brain, he took all the gore scenes from like all the films that he either directed or produced from all that time and just kind of crammed them into that movie. Nick and I were talking about that because we were talking about Folky for Fake and Cat in the Brain, aka Nightmare, Nightmare Concert, because mm-hmm. they're. I mean, obviously, one's a documentary, one's Fulci doing his fictionalized version of stuff, because there's definitely parallels to the two. I don't know officially why, but, like, there's six movies he grabbed clips from, and I just kind of assumed, like, they didn't have much of a budget to do gore effects, so he just had to basically take stock of what he already had. Yeah, or maybe it's just, like, the, you know, it does have that, he's having, like, nightmares throughout the film, so it was easy to just toss those scenes in. Makes sense. I've seen all of those movies. It's been a while. Oh, he also did those. We forgot to mention those two TV movies that he did. Um, Sweet House of Horror and The House of Clocks. I remember liking The House of Clocks pretty good, but I haven't seen it, you know, since, you know, it's been like 25 years or something since I saw it. But uh, I'd like to see that again, actually. I think that was one of the Media Blaster Fulci titles that came out. They did. I think they put both of those out, but I never, I never bought them. There was so much shit coming out around that time. You know, it's like it just got kind of like out of hand, like the amount of stuff that was coming out on DVD. And now I feel like um, the not that the stuff is coming out on Blu-ray. They're putting a little more effort into like making sure the prints are good. And I've actually bought a lot of that stuff. But and I would buy those if they came out. But I haven't, I haven't seen them come out anywhere. I'm sure they will at some point. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, it's going to be Read, Watch, and Listen on the Cinematic Void Podcast. New York City, a town of sights and erotic delights. Oh, yes, you like it, baby. A sultry setting for the sinister crimes of a crazed sex killer. A master of murder committing countless sins against unsuspecting victims. leaving a trail of brutalized bodies, and cops are stumped. He leaves few clues, but plenty of corpses, sending New York's finest on a cat-and-mouse chase through the seedy haunts of a sexual wasteland. Poor dumb cop. 
bitch. A terrifying tale of a sadistic thrill killer. The New York Ripper. Welcome back. It's now time for... On the Cinematic Void podcast, where we just discuss everything we've been reading, watching, and listening to. And since Scott's the guest, you get to go first. All right, Scott, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? Well, lately, because we're... We're going to talk about all this stuff. I've been reading uh, Stefan Thrower's Solchi book. I've watched most of the films that we've talked about in the last like week or so. And I've also been um, diving into uh, Jose Larraz and, and watching all of his films. I bought the uh, Arrow box set and um, the Dorado Films double feature. And I have a bunch of his films, too, that I've just that I just have digital files of. And I just in the mail today got the um, Lindsay Baker box set. So what will I be watching this week is, is that as far as reading other than the Fulci book, I think that's pretty much all all I've been reading lately and listening to um, that never changes uh, <laughs> things like Blue Cheer and the MC5 and. I'm trying to think of what's near my turntable right now is a couple of Buffalo records and uh, Blue Cheer 45s. Nice. Nick, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? Uh, I'm still making my way through that uh, Matthew Stokoe book, High Life. Um, And as I mentioned in the last podcast, it's absolutely disgusting. It's kind of a maybe a noir meets like American Psycho or something. It's just depraved. And I've been listening to uh, Terror Cell Unit lately. Uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's like some electronic, I don't know, noise, power electronics, industrial. I don't know, just kind of taking a break from all the hip-hop I've been listening to, I guess. And I just watched uh, Fulci for Fake. As for me, reading, I am still working through the novelization to the movie Roller Coaster, which... As I mentioned in the last podcast, is whoever, the guy that wrote the novelization, he took the screenplay, added all kinds of sleazy stuff that's not really in the movie. It reads like a scummy exploitation movie when, like, if you've seen Roller Coaster, like, none of that, you know, there's some weird stuff and, you know, obviously a mad bomber blowing up roller coasters and that kind of stuff. But, like, this might as well be, like, that mad bomber movie with Chuck Connors or something like that. The writer just takes it to this place where it just it's not the fucking PG Universal movie. And it's just, it's absolute trash. And it's really interesting. And for those of you asking, no, I haven't got to the part where Sparks shows up in the movie, in the book. So I will let you know if Sparks actually shows up. Um, watching, been a shit ton of Fulci movies. Um, been also been re-watching a lot of Mystery Science Theater 3000s when I've been going to bed. Kind of a comfort thing. Don't have to think. Just something relaxing and listening to i haven't been listening too much this week the i threw on a a feather and bones bestial hymns of perversion which came out in 2018 kind of interesting colorado death metal record from a band that started out as i guess a dark hardcore band and then decided to make longer songs with more blast beats that's pretty much it i've also been watching uh the uh perry mason show on hbo which i'm surprised um, how much i like it it's actually very good and dark and uh really gory really i've been wanting to watch it because i i am a fan of detective shows and noir stuff and when i saw that come up i was like i kind of want to watch this i i I like gritty reboots of 60s 70s tv shows especially if they're done well i'm like it's it's an origin story it's like Perry Mason as a, as a private detective, and it looks like you know as he as it goes along, he's obviously going to become the um, defense attorney that he is in the TV show. But it's very noir and sort of a Chinatown feeling in the beginning. It takes place like right after World War One, and uh, it's it's good. And uh, the the gore scenes are fucking incredibly gory. I was quite surprised check that out and i hope that means that the gritty colombo reboot that i've been hoping for is on its way now too <laughs> yeah but yeah you have a dead baby with its eyes sewn open in the first like couple of minutes <laughs> of the show this sort of sets the tone that this isn't going to be your um grandparents perry man <laughs> you know the spirit of Fulci lives on even in perry mason 
<laughs> there you go. All right, Scott. I want to thank you for joining us again over the wonderful, mystical realm of the internet. And as always, I love talking to you about movies, giallo, horror, all that stuff. And hopefully we can do it in person at some point. Probably be 2021, but hopefully it's before then. <laughs> Me too. All right. This wraps up the Cinematic Void podcast. We have a bunch more Fulci episodes coming your way. Until then, see you in the void. Mm-hmm.